Sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. I'm here for a good time. Hope y'all are as well. Cable Smith welcoming everybody into Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors show brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. A little George Strait getting things going for us today. It's so great to be here with you, by the way. Talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in and sharing a part of your weekend with me. And I can't believe it, y'all. I mean, where did 2016 go? Thanksgiving is almost here. Uh, But that means it is a great time to be alive in the great outdoors. And who knows, maybe this cold front uh, will fire up the rut in your neck of the woods or bring some mallards down from up north. (laughs) We shall see. Uh, Keep your fingers crossed on that one. I, I don't know what's going on with winter. It was 90 degrees the other day in North Texas. So anyway, uh, we've got a great show lined up for you this morning. So you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire here. Uh, Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat up old thermos. Yep, that one that still got mud caked on it from last duck season because we've got a lot to get into. And off the top, we're going to talk some migratory bird conservation. If you're like me, you know, as an outdoorsman, it's fun to take a look back at how we got to where we are today. And a lot of that, as far as bird conservation, uh, goes back to the Migratory Convention of 1916 and then the subsequent Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. So here we are, 100 years later since that convention, and Sean Oldenberger, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Dove Program Leader, recently uh, wrote an article titled Under Our Wing, which goes back and, and looks at the chronological history of bird conservation in Texas and ultimately North America. A fun fact for you, by the way, Texas has over 600 species of birds, uh, more than any other state. Uh, But back in the 1860s and 70s, I mean, the first settlers, they didn't care whether it was a sparrow, a dove, a quail, a duck. If they could catch it, they were going to eat it. (laughs) And that mindset was, you know, shared throughout all of North America. You can't blame them. But at some point, they had to take a look at themselves and say, hey, look, uh, we're decimating these populations. And case in point, the passenger pigeon, the last one, died in captivity in uh, 1914. And their numbers had once numbered in the tens of millions. So I think that kind of uh, was an eye-opener for the early conservationists out there. We're going to take a look at all of it uh, from where we started out to where we are today. Uh, then we will check in with our old buddy Razor Dobbs. Uh, can you imagine this? Hunting Cape Buffalo with a 10-millimeter pistol. A Cape Buffalo can weigh, uh, you know, up to a ton. And Razor recently got back from South Africa, became the first man to hunt the Black Death, uh, which Cape Buffalo have so appropriately been named, with a 10-millimeter pistol. And we'll tell you how that gun performed. Was he successful? Because I'll tell you this, if you can take a 2,000-pound Cape Buffalo bull with a 10-millimeter, there ain't nothing in North America that you couldn't take with a (laughs) 10-millimeter. So we'll see how that round performed and if he was able to get the job done on that uh, potentially groundbreaking hunt. And then, actually, Razor will spend two segments with us because 
he also did a green hunt for white rhino. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Well, he'll break that down for us. You know, black and white rhino have been in the uh, crosshairs of anti-hunting groups for years now, and most of it stems from poaching. It's not like hunters are out there over-harvesting these things. Uh, it's all for the ivory and uh, the aphrodisiac that uh, Eastern medicine claims ivory and specifically rhino horn is. So uh, we'll take a look at that exciting hunt as well. Ended up with a charge, and I think a Jeep got smashed when it was all said and done. Uh, so uh, hairy stuff uh, coming up here with Razor. And and then we'll wrap up today's broadcast by checking in with Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Ben Carter. There's some uh, absolutely disturbing stuff that you need to know about as a hunter, as an outdoorsman, because Humane Society International is trying to gain access to your private information, and they're using the Freedom of Information Act to try and pry that information loose from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And this specifically pertains to any hunter who in the last 15 years has imported a trophy from out of the country. So your stuff is on record, and Humane Society International wants access to your information. And in my mind, that means they could only be up to no good. Uh, but there's a way you can protect yourself. And anyway, Ben Carter will be here, and we'll get into that coming up at the bottom of the hour. So that's what's on the docket for today. It's going to be a good one. I'm certainly jacked up about it. But hey, there's no place I'd rather be than right here talking outdoors with you fine folks. A uh, couple other things to mention are November Photo of the Month contest is going on right now. This month's grand prize, a guided two-man quail hunt with myself and singing, songwriting, honky-tonking son of a gun. Zane Williams uh, will also be joining us on that hunt. Uh, so this month's winner will bring a buddy and go on a uh, quail hunt with us with White Rock Upland Game Birds. So be sure to send in your best outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com or post them to our Facebook page wall or uh, message them to me on Instagram with that LSOS hashtag. Uh, and then our 12 monthly winners, don't forget, will square off at the end of the year for a chance to join me on a trophy axis deer or black buck hunt, your choice, at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. So another great grand prize trophy hunt package brought to us by our buddy Glenn Underwood and Coons Canyon Ranch. Well, let's do a quick giveaway. Uh, our friends over at Cinnamon Creek Ranch, the best game processing uh, place that you're going to find anywhere. Uh, they're located in Roanoke, Texas, by the way, but they've offered up a prize pack this morning. I've got a beanie, a Cinnamon Creek Ranch cap, koozie, and tape measurer for when you ground check that big buck and want to find out what he scores. And we'll give this prize pack away to the third person to text in the word wild game that's wild game to 214-289-7807 wild game to 214-289-7807 and you could win the cinnamon creek ranch prize pack let's take a break we've got so much to get into today up next we'll take a look at the history of bird conservation in texas and beyond right here on dsc's lone star outdoor show Hey y'all, Cable Smith here, and uh, my friends over at Three Curl Outfitters, they go where the ducks go. The last couple years, all those greenheads seemed to be hanging up in Kansas, so what did Three Curl do? They went and leased 
30,000 acres in north central Kansas. They're offering a full weekend of waterfowl hunting for $600 a gun. That's two days of hunting. It's all inclusive. Not only the hunting, but lodging, hot meals. I mean, it's the whole deal. They're just giving it away. Are you kidding me? Uh, so check it out. You can find out more info at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940 to book your Kansas waterfowl hunt today. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H is in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. This is Steven Ranella, and I'm the host of Meat Eater, the show on Sportsman Channel. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. So one last time, let your aim be true on the other side, boy. I'll be waiting for you. When the dove flies steady and the ducks come down like a painter's vision from the cold gray clouds. The seasons will never close when we get up there. A real tearjerker there from Justin Bowerman, boy, and his dog, bringing us back on DSC's Lone Star Outdoors show. I'm Cable Smith, by the way, and uh, yeah, I've been uh, listening to that one a lot this week as this marked the first duck season that my old boy Maverick hasn't been around for in 14 years. So uh, a little bittersweet for me on that front because I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'd be sitting in this chair uh, talking to you folks today if it wasn't for that dog and uh, falling in love with duck hunting all those years ago. But he certainly is missed, uh, especially this time of year. I know many of y'all have uh, buried a good dog in your day as well, so uh, we'll pour one out for all those good four-legged friends that left us too soon this morning. That being said, we are about to talk some bird conservation. Uh, but before we do that, this segment of the show is brought to you by Scentblocker. Whether you're looking for a base layer or an ultra heavy-duty cold-weather hunting jacket, they've got all that plus everything in between, and it's all available in both uh, the latest and greatest from Mossy Oak and Realtree. So no matter which camo company you're loyal to, they've got you covered on that front, and you'll save 10% off your entire order if you use my promo code LONESTAR10 when you shop online at scentblocker.com. All right, uh, let's go ahead and bring on our first guest today. Um, as someone who's passionate about conservation and hunting and the relationship that exists between the two, 
uh, I'm always fascinated by taking a walk down memory lane and looking back at the history behind how we got to where we are today. Uh, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Dove program leader, Sean Oldenberger, recently penned an article titled Under Our Wing, which takes a look back at over 100 plus years of basically bird conservation, migratory bird conservation in Texas and ultimately North America. It's a great read. It was featured in uh, the August-September issue of Texas Parks and Wildlife magazine. And so without further ado, let's jump into it right now with Sean Oldenberger, our old buddy from Texas Parks and Wildlife. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks, Cable. Appreciate it. It is a pleasure. Uh, so first of all, why don't you tell us uh, what you've been up to as our, well, I always call you just our Dove program leader, but that's not your official title. You deal with uh, more than just Dove. Yeah, I deal with woodcock, sandal cranes, rails, snipe, uh, all the webless creatures that we hunt in the state. Uh, I pretty much deal with if they're not an upland game bird. Mm-hmm. And so, what is what have your responsibilities? Uh, you know, where have they taken you here uh, this fall? Well, this fall we actually just uh, finished up uh, the next year's regulation cycle with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and so we will be developing. Uh, our season dates and bag limits and those regulations for next year, starting with our commission uh, process this winter. And so in January at our commission meeting there, we'll actually introduce our proposed season dates as staff. And that'll kick off uh, folks being able to have those season dates a little bit earlier again uh, next year uh, when uh, and be able to prepare for travels when a migratory game bird seasons open up in 2017. Right on, right on. And you told me off there you've been tracking down a lot of bands as well. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, we have lots of folks across the state, or fortunately, however you want to look at that, that band birds. And so one of the things that we're doing right now in the wintertime, since we're not banding any birds, is actually tracking down uh, all of our bands and doing an inventory. Uh, the United States Geological Survey will be changing band types, and probably during the 2018-19 season, uh, and so we're actually going through and doing an inventory, finding all of our missing bands, collecting things, sending back uh, bands that we don't need anymore, and making sure we're in ship shape uh, to get those new bands here in a couple years. And so uh, we don't have a lot of outstanding inventories. They don't like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what I mean, what types? Obviously, dove. You guys band a lot mm-hmm. of dove, both mor- uh, morning and white wings. But uh, other than that, what other species are you you know banding the most? Yeah, and so our, our agency does a lot of bird banding, uh, and not only game birds, but also non-game birds. And But most of it, as you said, is morning doves and white-winged doves. And then we have a lot of folks along the coast uh, that actually ban model ducks, spend time doing that during the summer, um, because that information is pretty important to their management. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other projects we do is we have a biologist that bans burrowing owls in, the, out in El Paso. And then on a few of our management areas, wildlife management areas across the state, we have what we call map stations. And that's where folks set up mist nets and catch non-game birds and, uh, and then retrap those and then let those again. And that's the way we can actually monitor survival and productivity of some of our non-game birds across the state and across the nation. Hmm. Okay, interesting stuff there. Um, what I really want to get into today, Sean, is your recent feature in the August-September issue of uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife magazine. And I bet a lot of our listeners might not realize that you moonlight as an outdoor writer as well. <laughs> not not really. Uh, I try my best when I can inform the public to, to get things out there, but uh, I, I am no, no writer by any means. Well, I thought your piece was great. It's titled Under Our Wing. Uh, awesome read. And, and it, gave a, it gave an overview of the, 
I guess, um, you know, kind of the history of bird conservation in Texas. Uh, where did you find the inspiration for this piece? In other words, you know, what, why did you decide to uh, write it now? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's exactly why we did write it. This last August was the 100th anniversary of the Migratory Game Bird Convention. And uh, I know that doesn't mean a whole lot to a lot of folks, but that was basically the start of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, um, which folks may know. Um, there are things in there with that act passage that, you know, doesn't allow you to go hunt uh, um, certain species of birds that really, you know, that, that act basically defined game birds and what birds could be hunted by the federal government. And so uh, what happened about 100 years ago, um, or actually precisely a little bit over 100, more than 100 years ago, is, is we actually, the United States signed a treaty or a convention with Canada, and at that time Great Britain was actually over Canada, so it signed with them, and basically said, we're going to protect birds that are crossing between our borders. Mm-hmm. And be- before that time, there had been a lot of state agencies like Texas. Uh, we had passed a lot of game laws saying you can't hunt birds during this season or during the breeding season, or you, can't, you couldn't, hunt, couldn't hunt quail during here and here. And so what that, what, there was a lot of folks across the state and across the nation and across North America that were talking about bird conservation. The realization is migratory birds pass over multiple states, multiple countries, and, and they don't really know sociopolitical boundaries, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, it's how do you protect the breeding areas and how do you protect the wintering areas? And so um, with a lot of discussion, a lot of hard work, um, folks were able to get that in front of both both governments, and eventually we actually passed um, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in 1918, uh, a couple years after we passed the convention, that actually gave federal protection to all migratory birds in the United States. Hmm, right on. Okay, so 100 years ago, that's that's why you decided to write it um, now. And you allude to this in your article, you know, since the essentially the dawn of time, birds have been used as iconic symbols throughout our cultural and spiritual lives. And you look at the dove, for example, as a, a symbol for peace or serenity. Uh, you look at the eagle as, a, you know, a symbol for nationalism. And then, and, and then you just look across our culture. I mean, cardinals, hawks, blue jays, falcons, jayhawks, orioles, just to, just to name a few off the top of my head. I mean, those are all sports teams, you know, mascots. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are a big part of our, our culture. Um, going back, though, even before that um, <clears throat> migratory game bird, um, Treaty Act, you know, in, historically in Texas, every species were targeted by settlers back in the mid 1800s. Yeah, exactly. And so even like know, sparrows, I mean, if, if it <laughs> if it flies, it dies. I mean, that truly was the mantra back then. That 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 truly did exist. And obviously, you know, we're we're we have a we live a life of luxury now, and we do. And you think about settlers in Texas in the mid 19th century, even before then, and actually even after that. You know, you think about protein, you think about fresh meat, and, uh, and how do you get that? Everybody knows, it, 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 even in the winters here, it's, it's still fairly warm compared to up north, and so refrigeration didn't exist. And so fresh meat was a big thing when it came to markets and, and came to actually getting it to the public. And as cities grew, there was more of a demand in Texas for fresh meat at markets. And so we actually had a lot of market hunters, and it, it worked out fairly well in, in Texas for them because um, in, in historically, obviously, uh, the Gulf Prairies of Texas and along the coast was the primary wintering range for most of all of the central uh, United States, ducks and geese and cranes, uh, other birds as well. And so there was a lot of market hunters that existed 
that were going around and, and basically shooting large numbers of these birds and bringing them to market. And that's when um, the punt gun was uh, relevant. Yeah, the punt, punt guns, things like that came about. Uh, a lot of a lot of those uh, activities, how how to get the most for your bang for your buck, basically. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we also had other things going on. If you look in, uh, uh, you look at women's uh, hats and things like that. Uh, a lot of folks were going around and shooting birds also for clothing purposes and fashion in New York City and other places. Chicago, where these, you know, even in even in the Metroplex and even the start of Houston, um, you know, a lot of these feathers were put in hats and other other clothing items and were actually very fashionable and, and actually you know, a lot of money was involved in that. So we actually had folks here, not as prominent out east like Florida, mm-hmm. but we did have plume, hummer, plume hunters along the rivers and along the coast in, in Texas. Yeah. And so there were a lot of uncontrolled harvest, and I won't even say harvest, but just uncontrolled take of birds that actually occurred in Texas prior, prior to any of these regulations occurring. And obviously our legislature even before the Migratory Bird uh, Treaty Convention and Migratory Bird Treaty Act, I should say, um, they were actually passing regulations to protect game species as well. Yeah, I'm and looking then, here, and, and you mentioned one in 1879 was the mm-hmm. essentially the first game law of any kind in Texas. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes, and so so yeah, we had in the 1870s and 1880s, our legislature passed um, some very early regulations, and those weren't necessarily on some of those weren't on migratory birds, but they're on quail quail species. Uh, we know how important quail are to Texas uh, and the iconic bobwhite and its whistle. And uh, even back then on Galveston Island, uh, as it was developed, uh, they there actually were regulations to protect them during the breeding season. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Uh, you also mentioned, like, <laughs> going back to the 1870s, the passenger pigeon could be found in some of Austin's swankiest restaurants. Yeah, that's right. In fact, uh, most folks don't realize, uh, you know, that passenger pigeon, you know, that has been extinct now for for over a hundred years. Um, so that's kind of interesting as well. The oh, they're kind of like the, the sacrificial lamb in this whole deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so there used to be uh, huge breeding colonies uh, in in Wisconsin, Michigan, other places up north uh, that they say you could walk from. Basically, start walking and walk all day and never get to the end of the colony. Uh, a lot of those birds obviously didn't stay there in the winter. Uh, they actually came south, just like the, all the other a lot of the migratory birds we see here in Texas. And they actually came, a lot of them came to the piney woods of Texas and Louisiana. Uh, some of them even came as far close to Austin as Bastrop in the winter. And so there, was, there were market hunters in Bastrop area that were taking uh, these pigeons. And they basically, you could go to a restaurant in Austin uh, near the capital at the time and actually get them on the menu. Wow, wow. That's that's interesting, and, and it, but it's not uncommon. I mean, you go up to uh, like say New York City in that time, that same time frame, uh, and you could find canvasback duck on the menu of their most upscale dining establishments, and it would be more expensive than filet mignon. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was sought that, after. Yeah. Yeah, it was sought after, and so like in those times in New York City, like birds were going, they were going to Chesapeake Bay and shooting large numbers. Of, of canvasbacks and shipping those on train to actually New York City in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right on, right on. So I- interesting stuff there. Uh, like I said, the, the last passenger pigeon, though, died in captivity in 1914. And then, you know, not two years removed from that, we had the uh, the convention and then the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. Um, and, and that really, I guess, opened uh, the door for these wildlife refuges that we... Uh, 
would see come about in the 1930s. You know, Port Aransas uh, was was key in in the well, really the survival of the whooping crane. I believe in 1935 there was only, uh, and I think you say that in your article there was only about 38 left, mm-hmm. and so we have these refugees, uh, these refugees coming up, and uh, you know, essentially saving that species. Yeah, exactly. And we look at among others. Tool. I mean, you you mentioned sandhill yep. cranes too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of our refuges, that National Wildlife Refuges that we have here in Texas, um, were actually started in the 30s and 40s, and many of them were. Uh, and actually, they were purchased primarily at the time with actually uh, migratory, uh, basically duck stamps, federal duck stamp monies at the time uh, that allowed to purchase those because they were, they were at the time uh, deemed to be very important to the survival of migratory bird species, whether those be game birds or non-game birds, as in the whooping crane at Aransas, which provides a large amount of important habitat as well for 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 ducks and, and geese and geese historically uh, not so much now but but ducks still today mm-hmm. and so so yeah these things have become you know that really kicked off the whole national wildlife refuge system it kicked off a lot of the way we regulate hunting now and the way regulations are set and so really that started off um, you know gave it basically an umbrella for all the protection we need, we see now on a lot of these species and, mm. and the way we manage them as well. You know, it, it's uh, obviously some species um, like the passenger pigeon, you know, we saw go extinct basically due to uh, maybe habitat destruction and an over harvest in certain areas. And so, so, you know, those things, those federal protections don't allow that to occur anymore. I and mean, we have laws in place for that. And, you know, what that guarantees is, is my, my child and hopefully this child will be able to go out with a shotgun and hunt or around your neighborhood or in your backyard at a, at a bird feeder. Uh, you'll be able to see species that, you know, if it wasn't for those protection, wasn't for those laws and regulations, we might not have those anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I do want to go back to one thing you said there. Um, those, you know, initial wildlife uh, refuges were, were paid for with federal duck stamp money in, you know, in large part. And that just is proof that hunting always has been and will continue to be conservation. Um, and we saw it again, I think, uh, 2015, the Migratory uh, Game Bird Stamp Fund here in Texas. Um, there was some, I think there was a vote. You'll have to uh, expand on that a little bit. But uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife was getting some um, funding from that as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right there. Um, actually, in 2015, our legislature uh, allowed us to spend a little bit more money of our migratory game bird stamp funds. Those are state funds. Um, everybody knows that if you go chase ducks or doves in this state, uh, you've got to have a migratory game bird stamp. And if you actually get a, a combination, a super combination license, that's already in there. And so we get a percentage of that license fees that go rolled into that account. And so we actually take that money and we put that back to the resource. Mm-hmm. And 100% of that goes back to the resource uh, and this year, um, starting two years ago, we started doing uh, planning for spending some of those monies. And so we're actually going out and hopefully this next year doing some construction projects on our, some of our wildlife management areas using those funds uh, to repair water control structures and levees, creating new wetlands. You know, uh, there's a lot of upkeep and maintenance on these wildlife areas that exist. And sometimes um, the budgets don't allow us to keep up on it, but this money is yeah. going to basically fill in some of those gaps. And so we're going to be able to manage our our habitat better thanks to these funds uh, that are provided by our hunters. And so that's uh, that's a big uh, big help for us and big help for hunters in the state of Texas. Right, right. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that we have over 600 species uh, of birds in Texas, and I think that's 
basically makes us the the most diverse state when it comes to uh, to the number of of birds that we do have, uh, which leads to a lot of bird watching and and I think of uh, 29 million Texans. In your article, you say over 10 percent of them claim to be bird watchers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a lot of folks here. Uh, That's that a nice economic in the... impact just from bird watching. Yeah, exactly. You you combine hunting and you combine bird watching economically. And uh, that's a lot of income to small communities in the state, um, throughout the state. You know, it doesn't matter if you're talking lower Rio Grande Valley, if you're talking west of Houston, uh, Piney Woods, if you're talking up in the Panhandle areas. There's a lot of areas that depend on birds for economic input into their communities. And so luckily with that protection, you know, we have those resources with bountiful natural resources here in Texas, uh, bird species being one of them. And hopefully that continue, continues for many generations. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I uh, <clears throat> admit that I'm probably one of those, you know, 10% of Texans. And I think most outdoorsmen are uh, that enjoy bird watching. It's not all about killing. And, you know, you might be sitting in a deer stand and counting the number of cardinals that are coming to your corn feeder. I mean, every one of us on some level, I think, uh, enjoys watching uh, these beautiful creatures. Yeah, and it, whether you identify yourself as a bird watcher or not, I think most people uh, are very inquisitive about uh, about birds and birds around their area. You know, we get a lot of calls here at Texas Parks and Wildlife from folks that are that are that are, wouldn't consider themselves bird watchers, but you know, they're seeing certain birds in their backyard or on their ranch, and and they give us a call and and they're just interested. You know, those some of those folks on those ranches and farms know more about the, the biology and habitat of those bird species than we do as biologists they just don't know some of the specifics sometimes or even the name sometimes yeah and and but uh, uh but they're you know everybody i think in the state of texas at one t- one point in their life has felt a connection to birds uh, well be it that be hunting them or bird watching them or just see them in their backyard or or, to, or other odd activities that they see flying above or sitting on a sitting on a power line when they come out of heb yeah well, hey, man, I really enjoyed the article. It's titled Under Our Wing. Folks can find it in the August-September issue of Texas Parks and Wildlife magazine. Uh, Sean, thanks for jumping on with us, man. Well done, and we appreciate uh, all you do for uh, not just uh, hunters, but uh, conservation and, and all of those bird species here uh, in the Lone Star State. Thank you, Cable. Appreciate it. All right, there he goes, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Dove program leader and outdoor writer Sean Oldenberger. Uh, great stuff there. Always enjoyed taking a look back at the history of conservation and uh, certainly appreciate Sean jumping on with us today. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. It's that time of the year. Thanksgiving is here. It's not too late, however, to order your Thanksgiving turkey from Rudy's Barbecue. Get it smoked or deep fried at your local Rudy's Barbecue, including the newest location in front of the Cabela's in Allen, Texas. Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. Well, let's take a quick break here. Up next, we'll be joined by our old buddy, Razor Dobbs. He just got back from 40 days on the Dark Continent, and he pushed the envelope once again, hunting Cape Buffalo with a 10-millimeter pistol. It had never been done before. Was he successful? We find out next right here on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. With the LA County Blue. 
Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. So you know I love my guns, and one of my favorite hobbies is target shooting. Grant Stinchfield here. Recently, I got to experience what it's like to shoot at the Rockwall Gun Club. It's an amazing place, sitting on 70 acres, but what makes the Rockwall Gun Club so special is not just its first-class state-of-the-art facilities. Yes, it even has a 500-yard rifle range where your results show up on an iPad. But for me, it's the private atmosphere. It's like a country club for gun owners, 100% members only. And what's so cool is that many of the members are law enforcement officers, so it's common to be shooting next to the pros. The Rockwall Gun Club has 19 100-yard rifle stations, 19 25-yard pistol stations, and if archery is your thing, there's even a range for bow hunters. Now is the time to act. Become a founding member like me. The incentives they're offering are too good to pass up. The Rockwall Gun Club offers family and corporate memberships. Visit rockwallgunclub.com to set up a tour and see firsthand what it's like to be part of a private shooting experience. Visit rockwallgunclub.com. That's rockwallgunclub.com. Tell them Grant Stinchfield sent you. Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. Hey, y'all, it's Jeff Foxworthy, and thanks for listening to my buddy Cable Smith on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Uncle Ted jamming out there, Spirit of the Wild bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris Cable Smith riding shotgun with you. Thank you so much for being here as we are just seconds away from getting into the most insane handgun hunting discussion ever heard on the radio, I guarantee you that. Uh, But before Razor Dobbs hops on here, Uh, This segment of the show brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Available in the camo can again this fall. Grab a 12-pack on your way to the deer lease or to the lake. But remember, celebrate big tines and tight lines responsibly with an ice-cold Lone Star Beer. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. All right. Uh, Well, let's go ahead and bring on our old buddy. Uh, You can see him on the hit show Razor Dobbs Alive, which airs on Sportsman's Channel. And so joining us now from Kerrville, Texas, uh, Razor Dobbs, how are you? I know you had knee surgery this past week, man. How are you holding up? Yeah, I did. I, I'm doing really, really well. I did have knee surgery, but it's just a, it's just a, it's called a meniscus tear. It's nothing major. It's not like an ACL. So I'll be, uh, I'll be back in the stand by Monday. So I'm, I'm doing real good. Right on, right on. And now, was this uh, some kind of injury that you sustained while hunting? Well, I don't know. It's, uh, uh, it just came upon me while I was in Africa, about the sixth, seventh day in Africa. All of a sudden, just major, major pain. So I went through forty day or 
30, 33 days or so of this throbbing and hurting knee. But, um, but you know, we're hunting, so you just kind of go through it. But (laughs) but I don't know. I mean, I had a bad motocross wreck, um, 2002 that could have sparked it. And then I was doing a bunch of handgun competition maneuvers, running and everything and spinning. And I could have possibly done something in that I didn't know, you know, who knows, but it just kind of sprang upon me, you know? Yeah. Huh. So, well, wow. So, but, so it kind of blew up on you a week into your safari. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And thank God I had taken some, um, I had a prescription for some uh, really good anti-inflammatory and mm-hmm. that, that saved it because we were, you know, all those hunts, except for just a handful, we're all spot and stock and, you know, a lot of walk in a lot of that. So yeah. on the TV show next year, you'll see some, a little bit of limping. I was really trying not to limp. <laughs> we're rolling sometimes i couldn't help it yeah well awesome man glad that you are doing better and it's not going to keep you down long um you know it's been a it's been an amazing last 10 days for america though uh i, I like those trump arrows that you've been slinging yeah yeah and, those, and you know what and i feel horrible right now and and uh, because i can't remember of the company that sent those to me huh. but they make cedar arrows Oh gosh, I wish I could go get them right now, um, because I've had tons of people ask me about those things. I need because they're cool. They're totally cool. The Trump 2016 arrows. Yeah. And um, <laughs> freaking awesome. Yeah, those things are sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, man, it looks like you just had about as an epic safari as one can experience. Uh, first of all, tell us how many times you've been to Africa. And then uh, talk about this this recent trip you just got back from 40 days over there, and uh, obviously tell us which countries you visited. Okay. Um, well, the first trip I did was in 1995, and I went to Zimbabwe to the Savi Conservancy, which is incredible. And then since then, I think I've been on somewhere between 15 and 18 safaris. Wow. Uh, somewhere, somewhere in between there. Now, some of those were one trip. Like, like for instance, I just got, I was just over there and I was over there for 40 days and we went to two countries and two different places. You know, one safari was 10 days, one was 14 and another one was seven. So to me, that's three different safaris. We're going to different places, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, actual trips, it's gotta be 12, 13 at least, but I've done two 40-day stints over there. I've done some 25-dayers, and you know, but we always go to different places. Yeah. So where did you go on this one? We went to Mozambique. We went to Katata 11 in Mozambique. Absolutely insane. And then we went down to um, South Africa. We were right next to a Kruger National Park and a Big Five Conservancy, which was just fantastic. It was unbelievable. You know, lions and you name it. Hmm. And um, and then I went to the um, I went to the southwest or northwest to the Kalahari Desert to a forty five thousand acre place um, that was just I've never been to the Kalahari before and it was absolutely beautiful. Wow! And um, legendary. So yeah. it was, yeah. It re, you know this really was. I mean I've been real fortunate to be able to go on some really amazing safaris, but this one everything just clicked. I mean. You know, everything fell into place, and we got wonderful, wonderful video, and the hunts went good. I shot really good, real, real good. And and it, it was just one of those things when we got done, I was just like, wow, you know. Yeah. 
40 days is a long time to keep for everything to just roll in your favor, you know, and that's what it was. Yeah. But we were with great people, great pHs, and, you know, so right. it was phenomenal for me. It was fantastic. Well, I'm going on my first uh, this coming, uh, this summer, July of uh, excellent of this year. Yeah, I'm going to uh, South Africa with John X Safaris for 10 days, so I'm certainly looking excellent. forward to that, yeah. Um, You're going to have so much fun. On the East Cape, so yeah, we'll have a good time, there's no doubt. Uh, and you know, I've got my list of, uh, eight to 10 animals. I'm, I'm really yeah. excited, but I've always, you know, everyone says you just be open-minded when Africa presents something, you just got to say, you know, okay. <laughs> so maybe yeah, your list changes you know, or evolves while you're there, but, uh, it, yeah. And that's how it's always been for me. Yeah. I mean, it's all, I mean, up to this very last hunt, I mean, you go over there and you have your idea of what you want to do, but then something else changes or whatever. And, and I always thought, cause my first trip, um, I made some stupid decisions on, Oh, I won't shoot. I won't shoot that. I'm going to wait for this. And it never happened. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You got to be an opportunist and trust your pH. Yeah. Well, you know, you change things up on this trip. Predominantly mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking about hunting with your 10 millimeter pistol, uh, which yeah. you actually had to get a special permit just to, to take it. I don't know if you were hunting, were you hunting with that in, in all three places? Um, uh, not in Mozambique. Okay. Okay. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even try to take it to Mozambique. Uh -huh. um, but uh, we did it in South Africa. Right. Right. At the, at the Kalahari, and then down by Kruger. And you had to get a special permit just to. Yeah, I mean this. Right. A, a semi-automatic um, is is definitely illegal to bring in over there, and especially a handgun semi-automatic. And you can bring a handgun to hunt with, but it's got to be a revolver, a, a scoped revolver, and this was a freaking 10 millimeter automatic. So, um, we had, a, we had a couple of meetings at, uh, one at Dallas Safari club and one at, uh, Safari club international, um, with some people just, uh, first with, uh, FISA, the, um, the South African, uh, professional hunters association, mm -hmm. the, what we wanted to do. And we wanted to get their blessing. I knew, I knew that the 10 millimeter could do it. I knew, I knew it could do it. I mean, you've been uh, hunting with the 10 millimeter for years now. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've killed and an elk. I think we shot an elk at 40 yards with it or something like, you know, I right. remember seeing that footage. And uh Yeah, and it was in, in double tap had 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 um they didn't build me any special loads. It was just stuff they had in line and um and we tested it anyway. You know, we just said, "Let's see." And so so the the FISA gave us the thumbs up. You know, they said, "Yeah, we'll we'll support this." So the next thing was we had to get a we had to get the government to to uh give us a permit. And so I went through, um, an agent that went through and applied for it and did all the stuff. And, you know, a few months later we had a permit and right. then we got a, uh, we got a permit from the game department to hunt with a, uh, 10 millimeter hunt a Cape Buffalo with the 10 millimeter odds never, ever been done before. And yeah, and, I didn't um, think it had been. So this is groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's completely completely ground. So it was, it was kind of nerve. I mean, I had, I had a lot of confidence going in, but all eyes were on this hunt and especially with Cape, but, and you know, a Cape Buffalo shooting it with the four sixteen sometimes takes five shots. Yeah. And even when they're all good shots, I've shot plenty of Cape Buffalo with rifles and, and I knew the kind of abuse that they could take, mm -hmm. but I also knew the penetration power of the 10 millimeter automatic is literally better than that 375 because of the speed. Hmm. And, um, 
And I'm not saying that the 375 has better stopping power. There's no doubt about it. It's more powerful. It's not even, you can't even argue it. But the 10 millimeter automatic ballistically just, it just doesn't stop, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And um, so. So how close were you the, trying to get in on these, on these uh, Cape Buffalo? I mean, this is serious stuff because they're called the black death for a reason. Every year you, right. you hear a report of a, a pH being uh, trampled or gored to death by a, a wounded Cape Buffalo. Right, right. And and here, this was my thing. This is what I wanted to be very clear. I wasn't trying to do a stunt. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wasn't like, hold my beer, watch this. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I went in and I first I found out from Double Tap and I said, is this, is this possible? But not just possible. Is it very, very doable if I hit this thing right? And that was where we started. And the answer came out, yes, with all our ballistic tests and all that. And then my second priority was I had to do this completely correct. I had to, they had to be perfect shots, meaning the placement had to be perfect, but the position of the Buffalo had to be right. Everything had to be right. Or I was not going to shoot because uh, you know, Buffalo like, you know, are just tough. So I've got to hit them right. And I didn't want anybody to get hurt. And, um, you know, and, and that was the main thing. And, but it wasn't a stunt. It, it was, it was actually, it wasn't a daredevil move. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a very, uh, you know, I did my research. I knew I could do it. And the, the thing was, I knew I could kick the field goal at 40 yards, but then now I had to prove it in the game, yeah. you know? Uh-huh. And so I was a little bit nervous, but very, very confident. And so how close, so, how close did you end up getting? Yeah. Well, at first, at first, I told Mike McNett from Double Tap, I said, you know what, I'm gonna, I don't want to be any further than 25 yards. And he was like, well, you, you know, you can still shoot him further than that. The bullet will do it. And I said, yeah, but I want to make it 25 yards. Well, about day five, I realized I ain't going to be able to get 25 yards to these buffalo. I mean, there was no way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, but I was still trying. I was still trying. And then all of a sudden, it was just luck. Um, this buffalo steps out at 35 yards and um, completely broadside. And I aimed at him, and, I mean, it, it was just like like a tractor beam went right on his heart. And I went, oh, my God, this is it. And it just I just went, I, he's, I'm going to kill him right now. He's dead. I can kill him right now. There was no – and I shot, and that thing – when that 10-millimeter hit that bull, he – I mean, it hit him. It was no, it wasn't a mosquito bite. It knocked the heck out of him. And he spun around and I jump up because even with the rifle, if you can get a second shot, you get a second shot. Yeah. So I jumped up and I, I, he ran, ran through the bushes and he, he went up and he stopped, kind of stopped in a way. And, um, uh, and well, as he's going through the bushes, I just shot, I shot him again. I shot him right through the lungs and, and that was it the first shot had killed him yeah and then he ran about 85 yards fell over dead and we're watching this and we are freaking there were two phs with me and then plus another retired ph and um and we were in awe <laughs> because it was like oh my god the thing went down and then we hunted more it was a 14 day hunt and so i i shot a zebra at like 47 yards and um, I shot a, another zebra at 37. I shot a wildebeest at 50. I mean, I was shooting really far and just smoking and bullets going all the way through these animals. And um, 
Oh, let me go back to that first Buffalo. So, so when we go up to him, I love Buffalo anyway, but I was just humbled. I was just like, Oh my God, you know, it was incredible. And it was, it was for everybody Mm -hmm. because all the pHs, you know, they're skeptical. I bet. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, like one of them was very confident because he's been following the hunts I've been doing from the animals and he, he was in the meetings with us with, uh, with, you know, in Dallas and all that. So he was confident, but it's kind of like, okay, I know I can do it, but now we got to see it really happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, so it was a celebration, you know? And, um, and so that's when I was like, okay, I want to, I'm going to shoot another one. (laughs) <laughs> um, primarily because I wanted to, but number two, I wanted to prove it wasn't a stunt. Uh-huh. And um, so, um, so when we did the autopsy, you know, so 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 the next question was with that buffalo was like, how far did it penetrate? Did it just penetrate just barely enough, and we got lucky, or did it or did it really work? So when we skinned it, the bullet had passed, and I shot it right in the shoulder. You know, like right where you look on a diagram where the heart is, I shot it right in the shoulder. It went all the way through, went through the opposite shoulder, and was about two inches under the skin, wow. like in the meat. That's Complete. incredible penetration. It was incredible, and I, we were freaking out. And I was so happy because. And just for it, anyone that doesn't know, Razor, how much does a a, a bull Cape Buffalo weigh? Oh, they they can. I mean, this is all debatable, and it also depends on where the buffalo are. They sure. can go up to a ton, you know? Yeah. And uh, it depends on where they are. Uh, um, but, you know, they, you know, 1,500 pounds, you know, 2,000, okay. you know, whatever. Easy, yeah. yeah. You know, some of them can get really big, and some of them aren't that heavy. But but regardless, those shoulders are, I mean, there is there is not a tougher animal than, than a Cape buffalo. Yeah. I mean, you 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 want to test a bullet, you, you can test it on a Cape buffalo. Because they're just tough, and um, but uh, but you know when you know Mike and I did all this ballistic gelatin test and stuff, and then we 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 lined up like eleven water jugs, and um, and we shot it with a five hundred uh, five hundred Jeffries rifle, and it penetrated about seven jugs, I think, mm-hmm. and blew them to smithereens. Then we shot the 10 millimeter auto, it penetrated every one of the jugs. Huh. And the, what Mike explained to me, he said, look, it's physics. The bullet isn't traveling near as fast as that 500. And so you're not going to get the shock by any stretch of the, mag- the imagination like you would a 500, but it's going it's, it's gonna to penetrate further because it, it's pushing the water out of the way. It's easier to push the water out of the way in the flesh than it is when it's traveling that fast. Hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um, but anyway, so that was just like, you know, and I love Cape Buffalo, and and I wanted it to be clean, and and but I was willing. You know what? The thing was, if if it wasn't a clean shot or it wasn't going down, I mean, I had two guys there with rifles, and we were going to take it down as fast as possible. I wasn't going to like shoot it and like let it die for four hours just so I could say I did it. Right. You know? Yeah. And, um, I, cause I wanted everything to be legit. I, I wanted this to be legit. So, and, um, fast forward to the second Buffalo. How did that one? Play oh, okay. Out? Well, the second Buffalo, you know, cut to eight days later. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It was just like, Oh my, you know, I, I was getting a little bit nervous because we're hunting herds 
And um, because where we were, the buffalo population was down by two thirds. Huh. And the lions, because of the drought, and the lions were just hammering them. So they're basically getting their butts eaten by by lions like crazy. Wow. And so, um, so um, I got lucky. There, there, had, there had been this one older bull that's corn broken, kind of broomed off, and um, and I, I tried to kill him before and there's no way i mean he was very very wary and he would t- he would disappear in the herd or run take the herd somewhere and basically what happened was i got lucky and he turned broadside he he was out kind of by himself and i would just have to be in the right place at the right time and he turned broadside at 37 yards and i just belted him hmm. and um i shot him right in the heart and that but i got to tell you something you know, there's times when you shoot and you you're you're like, well, yeah, that feels pretty good. But then there's sometimes where you just you literally lock on and you're like, you're just everything's in the groove. That's how that whole trip was. When I put that gun down on him, it was just, it, there was no doubt. There was no doubt. Confidence I mean, I, was I, I riding high. Yeah, I wasn't even using a rangefinder anymore by that time. Wow. I just using the force. I, I just knew that the pHs at at a range finder, but like on the, all these animals, I wasn't even asking because I could just. It was just the coolest hunting experience I ever had. I've just, and anyway, so I hit this buffalo cub, boom, and he took off, and I kind of spun a little bit, and as he's taking off, I just cub, boom, and I hit him again right through the heart. There's two bullets right through the heart. The first one did it. Hmm. And, um, but you know, Cape Buffalo, if you can get a second shot, you get a second shot. Yeah. And with that 10 millimeter automatic, it's so fast, you know, it was just boom, boom, basically. But, yeah, but anyway, you, I mean, you, you put went, in hours and hours of, of training at the range. So oh, you know, everyone out there listening is like, Oh, Razor's just, you know, gone on this wild west rogue hunt. But I mean, your background with that 10 millimeter is, is, I mean, you're relentless. You're out there hunting with it and when you're not hunting with it i mean you're flinging lead down range uh, non-stop exactly and you know and that's what i tell people too you know i've heard people say, well, i can't shoot a handgun worth a dang or whatever and i go well look i'm not like some super athlete i practice like crazy and i'm lucky because i got a range i step outside my door and i got a i got a range so i can shoot but i really do i practice and i practice and before this hunt, I really focused and I really did a lot of different kinds of shooting because I, I, you know, this was serious business. Yeah. But I do, I practice and, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not an expert in anything, but I do know that gun and I, because I practice with it and I do know one thing, what changed everything for me in the 10 millimeter automatic hunting was the double tap ammunition because it was full power, 10 millimeter loads, which you couldn't get unless they were over overpowered, dangerous, overpressured. See, the difference is double tap loads them to full pressure. I mean, they, they, they load them full power, but they're still in same spec. They're still, the pressures are still safe for the gun. It's not overpressured. There's some other bullets out there, and they just try to make them as hot as they can, and they're that isn't that isn't the answer. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, and then the bullets that they load, and when that happened, that allowed me to start hunting Neil Guy and all kinds of stuff. And and 
the success on this is, and I'm just the reason I'm saying this is because there's a lot of guys that 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 want to handgun hunt or whatever, and I'm just telling them, look, use double tap ammunition. It is light years away the way that they load those things. Right. And um, and it really is. I can't tell you. I mean, my success rate with the ten with that ten millimeter is better than with my rifle, my bow, anything. The success rates of kills. Mm-hmm. And I mean, but so How about that penetration. You know, keep going back to that. Uh, yes, for sure. But well, fascinating stuff. Ground groundbreaking to say the least. You know, Mike McNett from Double Tap said it would work. Yeah, and yeah, it did and with flying colors. He was so. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, hey man, we uh, let's let's take a quick break here. I do want okay. to get into uh, another part of the safari, though. Uh, are you cool okay. to stick around? Oh, absolutely. Perfect, perfect. We've still got a lot more to get into with Razor Dobbs. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy in Marion, Texas, now with a new location in San Antonio as well. My friends Josh and Becky Gunther have been taking care of all of my trophy mounts for six years. They've done incredible work for me, and they'll do the same for you. Whether you dropped that big buck you've been after for the last three seasons, maybe your son shot his first mallard duck, whatever the case They've got you covered, and they do amazing work with fast turnaround time. Check them out at gr8mounts.com. That's gr8mounts.com. We all stick around. Up next, we talk a little conservation and go on a green hunt for a white rhino. What the hell does that even mean? We break it down next with Razor Dobbs right here on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Early one morning while making the rounds, I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down. I went right home and I went to bed. I stuck at 1144 beneath my head. That's the man in black bringing us back on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players. Cable Smith here with you. I thank you so much for sharing a part of your weekend with me. Uh, Exciting times for folks out in the Texas Panhandle. Mule Deer opener this weekend. Uh, Things open up in the Trans-Pecos as well next weekend. Uh, So, 
range conditions were good, and we're going to visit with uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, Mule Deer Program Leader Sean Gray next week, so you'll want to tune in for that. Uh, but as far as today goes, we're about to continue our visit with our old buddy Razor Dobbs. He's got an incredible white rhino hunt to share with us. It was actually a green hunt, and we'll get into that here momentarily. But first, this segment of the show brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. We'd love to have you get plugged in with this like-minded group of folks who are passionate about hunter education, hunter's rights, and conservation. To do so, check us out at our website at biggame.org. All right, well, let's go ahead and uh, welcome Razor back to the show. We certainly appreciate you sticking around, man. Oh, it's, this is great. This is great. Thank you for having me on here. You bet. Always great to touch base with you. Uh, and we're getting into your, your latest safari, uh, just like we talked about before, uh, the commercial break, taking two Cape Buffalo, among a litany of other uh, animals, uh, with the 10 millimeter the double tap ammo, uh, incredible penetration, something with, you know, regarding the Cape Buffalo that had never been done. Um, obviously, uh, you were a little skeptical. Well, you weren't skeptical. But uh, nervous, you know. Um, yeah. You thought it would work, and and it, and it ended up working to a T. Um, but there was more to the safari than that. You were there for uh, 40 days, and another part uh, that I really want to get into is the green rhino hunt. And for anyone out there who's yeah. listening today that doesn't know what a green hunt is, first of all, start off by explaining exactly what that entails. Well, what a green hunt is, it's a non-kill hunt, basically, and it's done with a tranquilizer. And it's kind of, you, you kind of have to be at the right place at the right time because um, what it is when they do a green hunt, there's a veterinarian and everything, and, and you're going to tranquilize a rhino. you got to track and tranquilize a rhino. But, but what, the reason that they're doing this is because they're they're – there's either something maybe wrong with the rhino or they're going to give him medicine or do a DNA sample or microchip him or do, you know, they, they, there's a reason for it. It's not like, Hey, we're going to go start a rhino. Right. So, so I happen to be in the right place at the right time. And, um, and it was very wild. This was in the Kalahari desert and a 45,000 acre, uh, place. And, um, it was the real McCoy hunt. I mean, we went out, we had to spot tracks and we spotted our, we had to go in and the thing, it was bizarre. It had like a 25 and a half inch horn. It wasn't cut off. This is the real McCoy, big, big rhino. Yeah. And, um, you're going in, you got a veterinarian, you know, I mean, everything's got to be legal. I mean, cause this is a serious deal. This isn't just a, you know, Hey, we're going to go out and do this. It's a, it's a lot at stake here. And the main priority of, of a green hunt is not the hunt. It's, it's not darting the rhino. It's getting the rhino down, getting him the vitamins, getting, giving, doing the vital signs, doing all the other stuff, and then make sure that he gets up and carries on. And right. that's the main focus. So even after it's down, it's funny when you're filming, you know, there's the vets doing all kinds of stuff with the rhino and people are trying to move the rhino, right? And you're just filming and it's not like this, taking photographs and I mean, you're taking photos, but it's all real fast because you got to get this stuff done in like 10 minutes and, and the vet will tell you, all right, we got to get out of here. You know, we got to, we got to wake him back. And the whole thing is you don't want to hurt the animal. You know, you wanted to get him back in there and it's fun. It's great. And, but then, you know, it's just click, click, click before you know it, it's over with, you mm -hmm. know, 
How difficult was it? Um, well, I would put it on, it was about like a Cape Buffalo hunt to me. Like, um, because I've been around some rhinos that were very, I, I'm not going to use the word tame, but they're very used to people on different places. And, and you can see them. You drive up to them, you see them. I mean, you don't trust them. And if you try to get out and walk up to them, they would run. But I've been around also rhinos that were just as wild as a buffalo, you know, mm-hmm. and this was the case here. And so, you know, the wind has to be absolutely perfect. And when we got into this brush where he was, it was pretty unnerving because he's right on the other side of the brush from you. And if the wind shifts, he can smell you and either run off or charge. And um, and you're, you can't get a shot. And here's the other thing, too. You don't want to have to shoot a, a charging rhino with a rifle. That's the last thing you want to do. Right. You know, because there's so much stuff with the rhino. So it's very intense. It's a very weird situation. And um, and we had thought at one time that we were he was going to maybe go through this gap and something, he got onto us and he turned around and came around the other way and um, kind of went out to this kind of kind of an opening, but there's no way that we could get a shot on him. And then all of a sudden he took off. And as he took off, I was like, oh, my. And see, the thing was, they said, they go, if we get him on the first stalk, it's going to be fantastic. But if we have to try to keep stalking him, this could go on for days. <laughs> because once you bust him, oh, yeah. yeah, good luck. Yeah. And so when he took off, I was like, oh, my God. And all of a sudden, he stops at about 30-something yards and turns real quick. And I thought, you've got to be getting. And that dart hit him right in the neck. And which is totally cool. It's just wild. But that dart hits him right in the neck and he took off like a bat out of hell. And then he ran. I mean, that thing ran a long way. And we were on the track, just like we're tracking the animal, following his tracks, following his tracks. And then, then, but the difference was the time's clicking. So some of us got into a truck and we're driving trying to way ahead while the other people were on the sport. And then we saw him laying there and when we saw him laying there, the radio goes on and all hands on deck. You've got to roll the rhino up and, uh, up on his legs, like a trophy picture, but you do that so they can breathe easier. And mm-hmm. the, the, the vet is right there on the spot, you know, taking care of the little dart wound and injecting this and doing that and doing this and doing the, what, I don't know all what he was doing. He had it's like a paramedic, and at the same time, we're videoing and talking about it because it's so wild. They are the coolest creatures on this earth. I mean, it was like – it really is. And they're like a, just a dinosaur. Yeah. And uh, – but so – so I And I've shot tall. those uh, – I've, I've shot uh, one of those dart guns at uh, Zebra here, here in Texas. They were trying to relocate them to another uh, ranch. And yeah. those dart guns are a little tricky. The one that I had anyway was set up more like a, it was more like archery because it had like, it only had like five clicks, you know, uh, 10 yards, yeah. 20, 30, 40, yeah. 50. And, and so you're hunting with a range finder with a rifle. It was kind of weird. My experience yeah. anyway, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't easy as all, you know, it was, it was very. No, it, it's not. And, um, and you know, it, it is, it is, it's even slower than a bow. So you got to really follow confident and very cool. And, and it was, it was cool, but it was when that thing took off like that and then stopped. And I was like, Oh God, I was hoping it was going to be about a 10 yard shot. And then it's got to be in the neck. I thought I was thinking maybe it'd be in the butt or whatever the case may be. 
mm-hmm. it wasn't. And uh, so I was so yeah. So 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 here's the funny thing. So you're you're looking. I'm looking at this animal, and it really is just amazing to to touch this thing like it is, and it's still alive. It's breathing. It's just bizarre. And uh, the funniest thing was, so uh, I got real angry because I, I do a lot of anti-poaching stuff over there, big supporter, and the rhino poaching is absolutely insanity, and um, and it's government-backed, and it's, you know, it's it's basically, uh, I don't know the the rant I did, I don't know if Sportsman's Channel is going to be able to um, air it, I don't know, because I basically said that, uh, you know, the way that we need next poacher we catch, we have to let this rhino, you know, <laughs> basically is what I said. And and I, but and you know what? And I I carried on, but I, I have to tell you, you know, I wasn't that that is just the way I feel about that. And and it it wasn't the nicest way to put it, but that's the way I feel about it. <laughs> These people, and and it's not necessary. You know, they're killing the rhino, but it's so corrupt. It is so corrupt. The answer to the rhino problem, the answer to the rhino poaching, is to allow all of these ranchers to sell the rhino horn. You can cut the horn off, and it doesn't hurt the rhino. You can farm it. It grows back like a fingernail. That would totally kill that that whole poaching epidemic. Yeah. But that's the problem. It would kill the poaching epidemic. Hmm. And there's too many people getting all this money from it i mean you know you know a, a big rhino horn's a million bucks yeah so so right now as we speak there's billions of dollars in rhino horn and ivory sitting in people's safes over there that they can't do anything with so all these private landowners are going you know these rhinos god bless them but they're they're, they're making it dangerous for my family i mean these these poaching outfits are buzzing in on helicopters flying down, shooting rhinos, cutting the horn off, and they're out. And anybody in, gets in their way is getting killed. And uh, it's it's like the drug cartel stuff. Yeah. And uh, but they won't do it. They won't. They won't. You know that would that would kill the the the, the poaching problem. Yeah. Well, and it's like it. uh, last year. Well, actually, no. It, well, it might have been last year, or it might have been early in 2016. But they had that big ivory burn. Uh, yeah. which we had Ben Carter on from Dallas Fire Club, and we talked about the uh, just the idiocy of that entire uh, operation because, you know, instead of flooding the market with that and, and you know, lowering the need for poaching and, the, you know, you, you, you put more ivory into the marketplace, well, then the value of it goes down. Instead of like, no, we're going to burn it. And we're talking like millions of pounds. I mean, it was yeah. it was substantial. I mean, it was a lot of the world's ivory all went up in smoke and so counterproductive. Uh, but it sounds like um, obviously got the same thing going on with the uh, with the rhino here. Uh, and that oh, wasn't that, all rhino that, ivory. That was elephant and, you know, what else? But, um, right. And, and that, that, that's the thing. And, and the, the, the governments know that. They know the truth. But see – there's so much money being made in that corrupt system. There's no way that you can you can uh, 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 smuggle ivory out of the country without some major help. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, it's a huge piece of ivory, you know. And and there's so much corruption, and they know the truth because whenever there wasn't an ivory ban, that means you could sell it and do this and do that. There was poaching, but it was minimal. It wasn't even, 
it was so minimal. It didn't, it didn't, it was inconsequential. But when they do the ivory ban, they create the market. They create the black market and they know what they're doing. That's the problem. The rhino thing's the biggest deal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just absolutely corrupt. So I'm sitting there and, and we're getting ready to wake this rhino up. <clears throat> and I whispered in that rhino's ear. I'm not going to tell you what I said to him, but I just told him what I thought about the rhinos, you know? Yeah. It's really a really cool thing. So rub takes effect, and we're kind of kind of clapping our hands to kind of get him to move off. And he moves off, and everything's good, and then he sits back down. We're like, shoot. So me and the vet and the PH walk over there, getting a little closer, kind of clapping our hands, and that guy got up, spun around, and he comes full charge right at us. Now, granted, wow. granted it was just freaking – I mean, a rhino goes from – zero to to full speed in like a second yeah <laughs> and it was so and so the funny thing was the professional hunter that i was with had a real horrible bad ingrown toenail and he's limping he can hardly walk <laughs> and i'm limping because of my knee and so so we're living all of a sudden this rhino turns and we bolt and i mean that you know the 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 thought of uh, fight or flee, it was completely flee. There was no. I was like, I'm getting the hell out of here, and so we're running. We run about 25 yards to the truck, and to the to the Toyota, and the rhino's too close to try to jump onto the truck. So we ran behind the truck. You know what I mean? On the <laughs> other side. Well, there was a tracker behind the wheel, and as soon as we ran around the truck, he started it up and started taking off. That was our cover. <laughs> and so we grabbed onto the truck and the truck starts dragging us. And, uh, and that rhino hits the truck. God, boom. I mean, just waylays it. And, uh, and we, we get dragged off and then the rhino turns towards my cameraman, chases the cameraman and he's running to try to, to get to another truck that a tracker's driving. And that trucker drives off. That mm. tracker drives off. So he's chasing the truck. It was a complete, you know, it was hilarious, but it could have been very bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it reminds me it was of the greatest one thing life. I don't need to experience uh, is being charged by a rhino. I, no. That was not on my bucket list. But uh, <laughs> well, how much of that was was actually on film? Um, pretty much all of that. And cause what, what had happened, there was another cameraman that was there that, um, when, when my cameraman got chased, he happened to be rolling wide. So he got the other half of it. Wow. So, so I hadn't even really looked at all the footage yet. Um, I looked at a, a little bit of it Yeah. and, uh, but it's pretty, it's pretty funny, but the, the, the coolest video footage that we got other than this Cape Buffalo was I had a hippo. I had a stare down with the bull hippo with my 10 millimeter and the, and, uh, if we got time, I'll tell you about that. This is incredible footage, but, um, we were sitting at a water hole. We were going to try to ambush these Buffalo and we, we just sat into this real thick thorn scrub and trees. And there basically was only one way in and you couldn't get out because it was too thick. Hmm. So we're sitting there and I'm, I'm sitting there and we're about 25 yards from the water. We're hoping Buffalo are going to come down and drink. And all of a sudden, the camera was rolling. I had no idea that the camera was even rolling. But all of a sudden, this big bull hippo comes out of the water. Wow. And I'm watching him. 
and he's on the other side of all this thick brush, but I'm watching him. He comes walking up. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. He starts walking around the brush, and that's when I went, this doesn't look good. And as he's coming around, and I didn't know the camera was rolling, but all of a sudden you see, and I'm sitting on the ground. I'm on the ground level, and I can't get out, and, and so I'm stuck. So I start pulling my gun out like this, and I have my gun up forward, and that hippo comes walking around the, the brush, and he comes walking, and he walks, and he's about a foot and a half, two feet away max from the front of my barrel, my 10 millimeter. Oh, my God. And it's a standoff. And if we wouldn't have been in South Africa, I would have killed him at 10 yards out. But with the rules of engagement and all that stupid stuff in South Africa, with uh with hippos and all that and plus where we were it was just like you know they give the value of an animal his life more than a person Mm -hmm. could i have killed it and been legal absolutely but but would have been a complete cluster whack nightmare yes but i should have killed him anyway but i'm sitting there and he's just right there look i mean this is unbelievable i'm sitting i've been scared one other time in Africa, and that was the elephant charge that we had to kill the elephant before he killed us. Other than that, I've been cool. But this, I was truly thinking, this is bad. This is really, really Well, hippos bad. kill more people in Africa than any other animal. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm not kidding. Re- so I'm sitting here like this, and all of a sudden the pH hit this limb with this rifle to try to scare it. But I was like... And the, and the hippo kind of backed up, you know, like, like tense back. And I was like, going, I was going, hey, 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 hey. And he started walking right, right back up to me. And I'm putting pressure on the freaking trigger. I've made up my mind I'm going to kill him. And I'm just putting pressure on the trigger like that. And all of a sudden the hippo backs out. Huh. <laughs> I should have, you know what? I should have killed him right there. Because I had that right on the, right on the Z, right between his eyes. But it was freaking crazy. Wow. It was it was stupid. It was stupid. And and if anybody ever listening gets in that situation with the hippo that close, kill it. Kill it. Because you know what? If I would have got killed or someone else would have got killed, or like if somebody else, if the camera guy would have got hurt or the PH would have got hurt, I would have felt horrible. Yeah. That stuff where all these people put an animal's life more valuable than human life, it's just disgusting. And so I had a little rant about that too. <laughs> and... um. <laughs> But on hindsight, it was a great experience. <laughs> but it's probably like the best. I mean, I have to just make a commercial for it, for Dan Wesson. That's going to be the whole commercial, the sippo coming out of the water, going up there. And I mean, it's just it's fantastic. Yeah. So I'll send you some pictures to put on the uh, on. Um, yeah, for our website on, for sure. Yeah, on your website and on for Instagram. Yeah. I'm going to pull some some still frames out of it. I just haven't even had a chance to even look at footage yet, but well, it's I'll great look forward stuff. to seeing that. That's incredible, yeah. incredible. Well, hey, uh, Razor, we're out of time. It's it's uh, been awesome. Uh, I mean, this truly was the safari of a, a lifetime, and for someone who's been on as many as you, you know, that's saying a lot. Um, if you want to give us uh, where folks can find you, I know uh, Razor Dobbs Alive airs on Sportsman's Channel, but uh, tell us uh, exactly when. Yeah. We we air Razor Dobbs Live airs on Sportsman's Channel on Saturday nights at at uh, eight o'clock p.m. Central Time, mm-hmm. and um, and then it airs like Monday at ten in the morning, and then like Friday morning like at three or something like that. But our prime time is Saturday nights at eight p.m. Texas time, 
Awesome. Central time. And uh, folks and, can find uh, you on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, Facebook is Razor Dobbs Alive, and then uh, and then on uh, Instagram it's Razor Dobbs Alive, and it's fun. It's you know I'm trying to post as much pictures as I can, and 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 also too you know all this handgun. I want to say if anybody has any questions about um, handgunning or you know please shoot me an email or whatever. I answer all the emails, and I'd be glad to you know, give you my opinion or my experience because it's totally cool, but, but it helps a lot if you have some uh, good direction to point to, you know? Oh yeah. Before I got my 10 millimeter, you know, uh, you're the person I basically went to and said, Hey, you know, tell me about this. And, uh, right. so I, you know, I can speak from personal experience that Razor will take care of you and, um, you know, offer up all of the insight and experience that he's amassed over the years. So, well, Hey man, we certainly do appreciate it. Razor. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Cable. This is a lot of fun. Congratulations on your success. Pretty wild. Yeah. Pretty cool. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, hey, take care. We'll do it again soon. We'll see you at DSC. All right. Excellent. Thank you. All right. There he goes. <laughs> Always a trip. Our good buddy, Razor Dobbs. And seriously, though, if you have any questions on handgun hunting, uh, he is an authority on the subject. So shoot him an email. He will get back with you. Uh, that segment, by the way, brought to you by John X Safaris. They're a second-generation safari outfit located in the eastern Cape of South Africa. They specialize in plains game and dangerous game hunting with an emphasis on quality. Check them out at johnxsafaris.co.za to book that South African safari you've always dreamed about. Let's take a break. Up next, some absolutely infuriating news uh, regarding Humane Society International and their attempt to find out private information on North American trophy hunters. And they're getting help from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's absolutely mind-boggling. So we'll discuss how we as hunters can protect ourselves uh, from our private information being given out to the anti-hunting freaks. And we'll do that next with DSC's Executive Director, Ben Carter. So stay tuned. And they get by. We all get by, by the grace of God, we all get by. Cable Smith here for Lone Star Ag Credit. We all know land is a limited commodity. Let's face it, they're not making any more of it, but everybody wants it. Whether that's to build a house, hunt deer, or run cattle, allow Lone Star Ag Credit to help make that land your land. They've been doing it since 1917. For more information, visit LoneStarAgCredit.com to let them help you finance your piece of Texas today. We all love fishing, but private water fishing makes the experience even more enjoyable. Private means private, and when you reserve one of over 50 private lakes, that means you're the only one on the water. Lakes are stocked and professionally managed to grow big bass, and most have boats on site at no charge. You'll catch bigger numbers and bigger fish than on public water. Silence, solitude, and no crowds. It's a great way to introduce kids and grandkids into the outdoors. Visit privatewaterfishing.com to become a member today. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. 
Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. I've been trying to go to church some, but I keep getting intercepted by the ball game on TV or Zepco 303. Only the good die young, a little Max Stalling bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm Cable Smith, and hope y'all are enjoying this little cold front we've had this weekend. Maybe winter finally will show up. Now, just kidding. I looked at the forecast. It's supposed to be back in the mid-80s for Thanksgiving week, so I guess there's something to global warming because I sure as hell haven't seen a real winter in a couple of years now, and it kind of ticks me off, to be honest with you, because all those greenheads hang up in Kansas and Nebraska. Uh, the rut is affected by cold weather as well. I mean, the deer are going to breed, uh, but a cold winter will really make them a lot more predictable instead of this uh, this trickle rut that we've seen here over the last couple of years. You know what? I'm keeping my fingers crossed that old man winter will eventually show up. I mean, he has to at some point, right? <laughs> we shall see. Uh, this segment of the show, by the way, is brought to you by the Cotton Mesa Whitetail Ranch located in Corsicana, Texas. I had the pleasure of hunting out there in October, took my biggest buck to date. And not only do they have just absolutely incredible whitetail genetics, uh, which they've worked very hard at over the last three decades, uh, but they've got some pretty impressive exotics as well. The lodge is also top-notch. I'm talking five-star Check it out. You can find them at cottonmesawhitetails.com. Okay, uh, let's go ahead now and get into our next topic, this criminally disturbing invasion of privacy by the Humane Society International as they are trying to use the Freedom of Information Act to access private records from hunters. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is going to help them do it. So how can you protect yourself Joining us now to explain exactly what recourse we have is our old friend and Dallas Safari Club Executive Director, Ben Carter. And Ben, I know this is a busy time of the year for you as you are packing your bags for some very important meetings in South Africa. Well, that's right. I'm, I'm heading out tomorrow to go over uh, to the FAZA, which is the Professional Hunter Association of South Africa annual meeting. And then the following week will be the NAFA uh, annual meeting, which is the Namibian Professional Hunters Association. Uh, they're great partners of ours and uh, have a number of their members that are exhibitors at our convention each year. And 
and that's just right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, it's only uh, about six weeks out now. I can't believe it. Time's flying, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, hey, there's there's something that was on my mind today specifically. Um, I think it's very important and, and a little alarming, to be honest with you. I picked up my copy of uh, Lone Star Outdoor News the other day and was shocked to read that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service might start releasing the names of trophy hunters to Humane Society International uh, and that's uh, that's pretty disturbing when when you think about it. it. It really is, and it's just another in a series of nuisance lawsuits and actions by HSUS and HSI. Uh, you know what we've advised our members to respond back to this and and request privacy so that their information is not released. Uh, you have until November the twenty second to do that so that they they can't continue to harass you. Uh, you you know anyone any of the listeners out there can actually go to the DSC News Center uh, dot org go to DSC News Center dot org and all the details will be on there and you can find out exactly what you need to do so that you aren't going to be be harassed by people. Mm-hmm. It, it's really unfortunate that that Fish and Wildlife has has uh, has done this and and uh, I think it points to our recent election that. It's a good thing that I think we're going to see some changes coming in Washington. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think 2016 is one of the uh, – it's been a rough year for the Fish and Wildlife Service. As far as I'm concerned, they've – they've. Uh, I don't know that they've got much of anything right this year. Well, yeah, and I, I hate to – let's just say I don't think they've looked out for the sportsman's interest nearly as much as they should. And mm-hmm. I think that the sportsmen – are the ones that that basically uh, carry the load on on uh, on most most if not all of the conservation that occurs in the country. They're, they're not, that's not to say that fish and wildlife doesn't, but all the different organizations out here that do lots of fundraising to improve habitat, uh, to 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 help management, uh, and and work really hard to raise funds to do all that, and then. And then it seems like you know you're taking one step forward and two steps backwards sometimes when you're trying to get things done, and and uh, I do look forward. I, I, I'm very optimistic that we're going to have a a a more proactive for hunters and outdoorsmen uh, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as we go into the, this next this next uh, term. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. And and they need it, you know, on some level to remember who pays their salary because if we stop hunting and fishing. Well, we don't really need them around, so. Well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, we pay their, we, you know, we pay their bills. So, um, but going back to this this thing, um, uh, the Humane Society sued the Fish and Wildlife Service, so they felt like, okay, now we we kind of basically buckled under pressure, and we're going to start releasing all the names of. And basically, it affects people who've had trophies imported from other countries from essentially 2002 to 2014. If you have had any trophy imported from out of the country, uh, then you're probably on that list. And I tell you what, I damn sure don't want a bunch of anti-hunting freaks knowing who I am and what I have or haven't hunted and, and where I live. And it's not hard these days to find out where someone lives. No, that's true. And that's why, again, it's it's very important if you if you do want to make sure you're not going to be harassed to go ahead and and respond, uh, you know, go to as I say, go to dscnewscenter.org, and you can get the details to uh, as to what you need to do to request that your privacy be protected and that the information is not released. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't get slack on this because uh, 
If you do, then you may start getting harassment phone calls or, or letters or who knows what. Uh, frankly, I'm wondering how people have so much time on their hands that they would want to take the time to try and do that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it still never ceases to amaze me uh, the lengths that people that are are not supportive of, of hunting and, and fishing in the outdoors uh, that would go to to try and just make other people's lives kind of miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's only one reason why they would request that information, it, and ultimately it would be to harass or make, like you said, our lives miserable. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be suing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to release that information. Um, you've already kind of broken down the recourse that folks have. They can go to uh, Dallas Safari Club's news center, uh, find out how they can... Uh, protect themselves from these just crazy folks out there. Um, but yeah, just something else just kind of makes you uneasy as a sportsman in this country. So like you said, though, great result in the election. Uh, and uh, I think, I know that DSC helped raise $60,000 uh, for that campaign. And, and uh, it's, you know, I'm proud to be aligned with uh, an organization that, that uh, looks out for, um, you know, hunters' rights, obviously. And and uh, continues to to push that needle. Well, and, and I'm sure most of your your listeners know this, but both of uh, uh, both of the Trump sons uh, are avid outdoorsmen. Uh, they hunt and fish, and they're big advocates for it. And and I think we have a great opportunity to get people in place that for that we have not had in a long time that are absolutely pro uh, use of the outdoors for wildlife and fish and mm-hmm. and, uh, and and we have a great opportunity here that we haven't had in a long time yeah well and maybe we can reverse that alarming trend too you know we've talked about in the past how i think up to 60 percent of folks now who work for the fish and wildlife service don't hunt or fish and that's uh you know that's pretty disturbing <laughs> in and of itself that, that is and 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 uh i'm hoping we get a director of fish and wildlife that will re-educate the the staff of the Fish and Wildlife Service that they are really here to serve us, the citizens. And the reason that we have the Fish and Wildlife Service is is for is for the use of all the citizens and and not the taking away of as much of it as you can. That which is the way the trend has been going the last number of years. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt, no doubt. Well, hey, we certainly wish you uh, safe travels. Thanks for coming on, uh, jumping on here and, and just uh, breaking this situation down for us because, like we said, kind of disturbing. Uh, but folks go to the uh, website, find out how they can take their names off of that list if they so choose to do so, and I highly recommend that they do. Um, and then real quick, if you want to give us the, the dates for the convention coming up here first week of sure. January. January 5th through the 8th, we'll be in 800,000 square feet of space. We've got fabulous auctions. We have a, a new thing this year. You can actually uh, go to our silent auction or, or get online, and you can register to bid. You don't even have to necessarily be at the show to look at some of the auction items, and we've got fabulous auction items. But uh, the show's going to be great. You're going to see all the celebrities in the outdoor world. will be there, Jim Shockey, Larry Wyshoon, Craig Boddington, Ivan Carter. They'll all be there. and. And uh, it's a great gathering of sportsmen kind of after the seasons are over and before the next year starts to get together, see each other, have camaraderie, and, 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 and talk about all the things that are important to us is our passion. Well, good stuff, Ben. We certainly appreciate it. Right. Safe travels, and we will uh, see you here coming up in a couple weeks. Sounds good. And he's off for South Africa, our old buddy, Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Ben Carter. Uh, uh, well, hopefully you all found that at least uh, educational 
that you know there is an organization out there trying to get private information on hunters. I mean, think about that for a second. That'd be like you and I trying to find out information on all of the uh, anti-hunting PETA freaks out there. Frankly, I don't give a damn. Uh, so why they're so concerned with us, I have no idea. Uh, but those uh, crazy liberals, I'll never figure them out. Uh, anyway, that segment brought to you by uh, Stillwater's Ranch in Lano, Texas. My friend Clayton Leverett, his family has owned the property since 1892. So lots of family history on this one-of-a-kind whitetail hunting ranch nestled into the hill country outside of Lano, Texas. If you're looking for that last-minute trophy hunt, give Clayton a shout. You can find him at stillwatersranch.com to book your next trophy hunt. Okay, that, unfortunately, is going to do it for today's broadcast. Uh, we are flat out of time. Got to go. Got to get out of here. I've got some ducks to shoot anyway, so uh, I'm looking forward to taking Bell out and getting after some of those gray ducks because all I've seen so far gadwalls. We haven't had the cold weather to push those green-headed birds down here yet. Uh, but we're going to have a good time either way. Hope you all do the same this weekend. Uh, have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, we'll be here again, same time, same place next week. But you all eat lots of turkey. Spend some time in the great outdoors with friends and family. Watch a little football. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying you all have a great week in the outdoors. Now it's all the way back. To get to where I